the next speaker is Jerry Smedenhoff. He is also my friend, and I will let you in on the little secret here. Jerry and I just got back from a trip to uh, Stovermont, where we uh, listened and took part in a scholarly meeting. But we uh, also made a little detour to Montreal and Quebec, uh, where we did not engage in really uh, serious talk, but we did visit all of Quebec's uh, finest brasseries. Um, he is a polished writer and a terrific speaker who is committed to the cause of liberty. He has written several papers and given several talks defending liberty. He uses several keen observations and clever examples gleaned from our day-to-day -day lives to illustrate his points, points which escape the average person. Uh, but what sets him apart is the fact that he is troubled by the current pervasive societal corruption. He, like many of us at this meeting, has been searching for a career opportunities which would allow him to be truly honest. Like many of us, he is troubled by the fact that opportunities for truly honest work are few and far between because of big government. But he has not given up on liberty and integrity. He continues to do his part to educate anyone willing to listen to the virtues of liberty. Thank you very much. The primary reason you are all assembled at this conference today is that you desperately yearn to return to the era of a free market for health care that existed prior to the founding of AAPS back in 1943. And you are willing to do just about anything to make that happen. Yet, without realizing it, since the meeting began this morning, all of you in this room have witnessed and participated in an event that illustrates how this dream can become a reality. This event is so special that economists call it a miracle, yet it's so trivial that none of you even bothered to notice it. I don't expect anyone to be perceptive enough to identify the details of what just happened, but I will give you a hint. I have performed this experiment, and no doubt you have participated in such an experiment many times in the past. However, this incredible successful triumph represents only half the story I want to tell you today. Before I reveal the details of our collective unique accomplishment of the past hour, let me provide you with some background. For the past six decades, the level of freedom in health care in the United States has been declining dramatically. For this generation of health care, those with medical training who come in contact with the patients, that is doctors and nurses, are financially and professionally worse off. While most of those in the healthcare industry who do not interact with patients, that is actuaries, accountants, and attorneys, are financially and professionally better off. This simple observation sums up the three fundamental problems of healthcare in the United States. The first problem is that the wrong people are making the decisions. What should be a two-party transaction between patient and physician, unfortunately is a four-party transaction complicated by health plans, employers, and governments. Healthcare should be purchased by patients and managed by physicians. Instead, it's purchased by third-party payers and managed by health plans. The people with the most knowledge and in the best position to affect the outcome are taking orders from faceless entities who will never meet the patient or physician and who aren't responsible for the outcome. The most disastrous manifestation of this occurred back in the 1990s 
with the creation of Physician Hospital Organizations, or PHOs, which were extensions of HMOs and were founded on the idea that actuaries, with no medical training, would tell doctors how to practice medicine, while physicians, with no actuarial training, would manage health insurance risk. (laughs) PHOs no longer exist today, and HMOs are a dying breed. Like so many dot-com startups, they had a short-lived meteoric rise and crash, leaving a scorched-earth trail of bankruptcies among the physicians and hospitals who invested in them. Several years ago, I attended a conference where the featured speaker was an actuary who made his fortune designing PHOs, who appeared to be about age 50 and comfortably retired. Reflecting on the failure of the capitated PHO model, he placed the blame solely on the doctors. Because, as he said in exasperation, doctors just don't understand insurance. At the reception following the conference, I tried to explain to him that actuaries don't understand medicine. And maybe a better division of labor would be for to let actuaries manage the insurance risk and let doctors practice medicine. He resolutely held his position, and in retrospect, it's easy to understand why. The capitated PHO models he designed made him rich beyond his wildest dreams. It would be much easier to have a dialogue with him had he lost his life savings and been driven into bankruptcy. Impoverished doctors I've discussed this topic with have no trouble identifying the fundamental flaw of the PHO model because they have paid an enormous price to learn a painful lesson. The second problem is that the healthcare system is purposely designed to do the wrong things. It makes it harder, not easier, to obtain health care. And it adds waste and cost into the process, what the world-renowned Toyota production engineer Taiichi Ono referred to as MUDA, that's spelled M-U-D-A, which, en- is, which is any activity that adds waste and cost but does not add value. Ono identified seven categories of MUDA or waste. The first is delay. This is idle time spent waiting for something, such as a pre-certification approval, utilization review, or payment from an insurer. The second category is movement. This is unnecessary movement of products, people, or information, such as requiring patients to see a primary care physician before being referred to the specialist they knew they wanted to see in in the first place. Oversight. Having one worker, such as a case manager, watch another worker do his job. If a worker can't be trusted to do a job, an efficient enterprise either retrains or replaces the worker or redesigns the task. Inspection. Having one worker inspect the work of another after it has already been completed, as in retrospective reviews. The goal of worker autonomy is self-control and self-inspection. If someone is unable to determine whether his work is acceptable, then he's not competent to do the job and should be replaced. Rework. This is performing the same task a second time, such as giving a needless second surgical opinion or refiling a claim. Overproduction. This is manufacturing of products that aren't needed, such as defensive medical tests or processing of unnecessary claims information. And last is defective design. This is the design of goods that do not meet customer needs, such as CPT, DRG, and ICD-9 coding schemes, which were designed for the convenience of third-party payers and not for the treatment of sick patients. If someone in the audience were to suddenly grab his chest and double over unconscious, the first question everyone asks is, is there a doctor in the house? No one ever asks in desperation, what's the diagnosis code for acute heart failure? This brings to mind the amusing story about the group of college fraternity students who had a ritual every Saturday evening of getting drunk and telling the same jokes to each other. After a while, when everybody knew all the jokes, 
they decided to save time by assigning numbers to each of the jokes. So members of the fraternity would simply shout out a number, and everybody would bust out laughing. Once, when a new member was initiated into the group, he was informed of the numbering system, but rather than take the time to learn which joke was associated with which number, he thought he could take a shortcut, become the life of the party, and simply shout out the number 17. After he did that, the group responded with an agonizingly long and cold silence, and a friend whispered into his ear, well, I guess you had to be there. In a similar vein, I imagine a group of doctors sitting at a bar shouting out CPT codes or ICD-9 codes and laughing hysterically as though they were punchlines to outrageously funny jokes. There's a priceless story about Taichi Ono that is recounted in the foreword to the 1988 edition of Henry Ford's classic book on manufacturing, Today and Tomorrow. Originally published six decades earlier, in 1926. In 1980, when the quality of American cars was at its worst, and when America's big three automakers humbly made the pilgrimage to Japan, cap in hand, to learn the secrets of their methods, a group of engineers from Ford Motor Company bombarded Taiichi Ono with questions about what inspires his thinking on manufacturing and quality. Ono could only laugh, and he told them that he learned everything he knew from Henry Ford's book, Today and Tomorrow. The lesson to take away from this story is that, like the auto in industry, the medical profession is a classic case study of the Chinese business proverb, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. Just as it took three generations to bring the once mighty U.S. auto industry to its knees, in the span of three generations, we have brought the U.S. healthcare system to its knees as well. The third problem with the U.S. healthcare system is that, believe it or not, all four participants, patients, physicians, third-party payers and health plans, are all logically and rationally acting in their own best interests. Now, how can this be? If everybody hates managed care, how can everyone be acting logically and rationally in their own best interest? The answer is that our healthcare system represents the natural evolution of the muta of a defective design of employer-sponsored healthcare driven by the Internal Revenue Code. Why have patients, physicians, pay payers, and insurers logically and rationally added all this muta, all of this waste and cost into the healthcare delivery process? It's because information, responsibility, accountability, and trust are either improperly assigned or missing entirely. Because employers and the government have been paying for the vast majority of health care, patients logically and rationally have not been responsible for their health or been held accountable for the cost of the health care they use. Because they have little or no information about the cost or treatment options, their view of health care is roughly equivalent to the view of a six-year-old sitting on the lap of Santa Claus, offering nothing while asking for everything. Economists call this acting from a state of rational ignorance. And rational ignorance is defined by the phrase, I don't know and I don't care. And you cannot achieve an efficient allocation of resources with rationally ignorant participants. If you could, there would be lots of six-year-old corporate CEOs. Because physicians have little information about what the buyers of their services are willing to pay, they logically and rationally have charged prices and delivered services designed to grow their practices and to advance the medical profession. Like military defense contractors during the Cold War, cost was not a primary consideration. They were trying to design and build weapons to fight and defeat an enemy, in their case disease, more than stay on a budget. Cost overruns were not only acceptable, they were almost considered desirable. Because employers and the government were paying the full bill for all this health care, they were logically and rationally forced to take dramatic measures to control costs. 
All employers could hope to accomplish was to deter and prevent patients from seeking medical care and to deter and prevent physicians from providing it. In fact, the U.S. steel industry's failure to comprehend and account for the seriousness of this flawed healthcare design has been one of the major factors in its demise. Because health plans were the intermediaries of nearly every healthcare transaction, and because neither patients or physicians were responsible or accountable for the costs, their logical and rational response in this messed up world of employer sponsored, government controlled, third party prepaid healthcare was to micromanage physicians, patients, physicians and patients by adding muta, delay, movement, inspection, oversight, rework, overproduction, and poor design into every step of the healthcare delivery process. So the re result is that we have four participants patients, physicians, payers, and health plans, all of whom hate their situation but all of whom are logically and rationally acting out of their own best interests. It's a classic example of the natural product of defective design, Gresham's Law of Media, where the bad practices, as prescribed by law, dominate the market and drive out good practices. Do patients enjoy having no choice of health plans or doctors? Do physicians enjoy asking permission from a utilization review manager to treat a patient? Do insurers enjoy foregoing profits to hire case managers to monitor physicians? Do employers in the government enjoy paying for all this muta, all this waste? Obviously, the answer is no. But not so obviously, they all do it, not because they enjoy it. They do it out of self-defense. If patients don't follow all the rules of their prepaid health plans, they have to pay for their health care a second time on their own with after-tax after earnings at double the price. If, if physicians don't join HMO and PPO networks and follow the protocols, their patient base evaporates. If health plans don't micromanage patients and physicians, costs rise dramatically. And if employers don't offer health benefits, they risk losing their workforce. This endless cycle of futility brings to mind the famous poem about the, er the absurd reality of the ideal socialist utopian dream, which goes, there is no unemployment, but no one works. No one works, but everybody gets paid. Everybody gets paid, but there is nothing to buy. There is nothing to buy, but everybody owns everything. Everybody owns everything, but no one is satisfied. And no one is satisfied, but 99% of the people voted for the system. Well, if you hated your personal situation, you would try to change it. And if many people hated their collective situation, they would logically and rationally vote to change it. So what's the problem? Well, we all know how difficult it can be to quit smoking or lose, light, lose weight. It's tough enough making the personal decision to throw away the cigarettes or stick to a diet. Yet, while we all know many people who have done so, it's an obvious fact of life that the vast majority of smokers refuse to quit and the vast majority of obese refuse to lose weight. Well, what if we change the rule of life such that for someone to quit smoking, he had to get a majority of smokers to agree to quit with him? and to stay true to their promise. And if most smokers refused to quit or reverted back to their bad habits of smoking, he would be forced to vote to smoke for the rest of his life. Or what if the laws of society were changed such that a local restaurant, grocery store, or ice cream parlor could sue an obese person who goes on a diet for lost revenue? <laughs> what if an obese person's legal liability for food consumption was interpreted by the courts to be as large as a doctor's liability for surgical malpractice. How many people would have the courage to go on a diet 
If all it took were one groundless lawsuit by a disgruntled grocer to wipe out his savings and force him into bankruptcy. This brings me back to the unique event I alluded to at the beginning of my speech, in which you all witnessed and participated. I logically and rationally did a simple and trivial thing at this conference that I would never do in the U.S. healthcare system, because the consequences would be severe and potentially disastrous. The simple and trivial thing I did was to leave my computer on this table in a room full of people I never met while I left the room and went to the bathroom. Now, I normally don't do this. I would never do this in an airport, coffee shop, or bookstore. I logically and rationally did it here this morning because I had an enormous amount of advanced information that you are all members of the same organization, AAPS, and I had an enormous amount of trust in what this organization represents. I also knew that there exists an unwritten, unspoken bond among you which holds you accountable to each other. Any one of you could have stolen his computer while I was gone. However, there would have been a hundred witnesses to, this, to the theft who would have identified you as the culprit. Now, don't take this compliment about your integrity too seriously, for two reasons. First, I've even left my computer out in the open when I've spoken to groups of actuaries. And remember that actuaries are the profession responsible for the financial integrity of Social Security and Medicare. Second, while I, as a generic actuary, trust you collectively as physicians here today to hear me speak, I, as a generic actuary, do not trust you tomorrow individually when you return to your offices and practice on, excuse me, practice on rationally ignorant patients that I am financially responsible for. The reason why I trust you collectively here today, but don't trust you individually tomorrow, is explained by two economic principles of game theory. The first principle is known as the prisoner's dilemma, which grew out of the nuclear arms race from the Cold War. The second and closely related principle is known as the Nash Equilibrium, which was introduced into the popular culture a few years ago by the book and movie A Beautiful Mind. The prisoner's dilemma defines the rules of the game or the environment in which you operate, while the Nash Equilibrium tells you how to play the game. The three basic categories of prisoner's dilemma economics are win-win, win-lose, and lose-lose scenarios. Win-win scenarios are the domain of free market economic exchanges, where you get what you want in exchange for giving me what I want. Win-lose scenarios are the domain of sports and games, where there has to be one winner and one loser. Lose-lose scenarios are defined by the domain of undesirable choices that we sometimes face. For example, should the United States risk bankrupting its economy to build up a military-industrial complex to neutralize the threat of the Soviet Union? Or should the United States unilaterally disarm and risk handing over Western Europe to the Soviets? It goes without saying that you entered the medical profession with the idea that your career would be a win-win scenario. And now, many of you find yourselves in win-lose or lose-lose scenarios. The authority that controls the game sets the rules and determines the scenario. The prisoner's dilemma problem we must face is the fact that none of the four participants in the U.S. healthcare system, patients, physicians, payers, and health plans, are able to control the game or set the rules, which are defined by the Internal Revenue Code and state insurance departments. They are all stuck in the same canoe headed straight for a waterfall without a paddle to steer, change course, or even slow down. The Nash Equilibrium holds that in a scenario involving many people, you and I will change our behavior to maximize our wealth when we have knowledge of the strategies of the other participants. 
This is why employers offer health benefits to their workforce instead of paying higher wages. It's why patients purchase health care through their employer instead of on their own. It's why physicians join health plans and accept Medicare assignment. And it's why health plans micromanage patients and physicians. All these, particip- all these participants did not spontaneously decide on a whim or roll of a dice to engage in all this muta of managed care. They did so because that's the way our health care system has evolved, based on everyone logically and rationally acting in their own best interest over time, given the rules of the tax law and the knowledge of how others will respond. The Nash equilibrium problem we must face is that the U.S. health care system has evolved as an irreversible one-way process similar to baking a cake. You can bake a cake starting with an egg and two cups of flour, but you can't start with a cake and recreate a separate egg and dry flour. The Nash equilibrium also represents the two extremes that further explain the lose-lose game of managed care muta we're all forced to play. At one extreme of the Nash equilibrium is the tyranny of the majority. It's sometimes called the herd mentality, where everyone is coerced into following the crowd or going along to get along. Because standing out alone, opposed to everyone else, is too costly. Common business examples here are restaurants and car dealers, which are usually grouped together geographically to allow for easy comparison shopping. If you want to open up a new restaurant or new car dealership, you're better off doing so in the same locale as your competitors. Otherwise, nobody will travel to the other end of town just to sample your wares. The herd mentality is why physicians join health plans, why health plans micromanage physicians, why employers offer health benefits, and why employees submit to their restrictive rules of their employer's health plans. They do so not because they want to, but because everybody else does. If they try and buck the prevailing trend, they are left out in a cold to starve. At the other extreme of the Nash equilibrium is the tyranny of the minority. It's sometimes referred to as the lone wolf or mad bomber scenario, where there is the one in a million chance that there exists a madman with an explosive device who can destroy everything. The obvious example here is airport security. Maybe only one in a million passengers wants to hijack or blow up a plane. However, because this risk risk does exist, we are all forced to endure intrusive searches at airports. In fact, we actually prefer to have these searches. Most of us would refuse to fly without them because they assure us that the other passengers or participants are legitimate customers who do not represent a threat to us. You may recall that a similar scenario occurred back in 1980 when seven people were murdered by Tylenol laced with cyanide. The pharmaceutical industry reacted by demanding that Congress pass legislation requiring that all over-the-counter medications be packaged, or requiring all over-the-counter medications to package their products in tamper-proof containers. The lone wolf threat is why health plans require patients to be routed through physician gatekeepers and why they try and micromanage the treatment of every patient. For all but the largest employers, all it takes is a few unsupervised patients seeking unlimited care or a few unsupervised physicians providing unlimited care to bust the annual budget for a company's health benefits. So how do we dislodge ourselves from this mess of the prisoner's dilemma and Nash equilibrium that patients, physicians, payers, and health plans have all backed themselves into? Let's look at two examples in other sectors of the economy where this muta has been eliminated. Airlines and public utilities provide a solution to the herd mentality dilemma of excess muta or waste. For more than a decade, there's been no reason for your telephone, electric, or gas utility to send you a bill. 
and there's been no reason for you to waste your time writing out a check every month and mailing it in. This can all be handled electronically and automatically without any paper or human intervention. Most utilities now process payments this way, but there is still a small resistance and fear among customers, resistance to changing old habits and fear of the unknown of electronic payment. Utilities are fighting this resistance by offering the convenience of automated paperless payment, along with the assurance that that payment will be made on the due date so customers will not lose any interest on their money. The next logical step is either to add a surcharge to customers who pay by manual check or to offer a discount to customers who pay electronically. Airlines are actually doing both, adding surcharges to tickets sold through travel agents while simultaneously offering discounts for tickets purchased over the Internet. Once the herd grows large enough and achieves a critical mass, the lagging minority is faced with the choice of adopting a new standard or paying ever larger surcharges. Private schools and bottled water point the way to the lone wolf solution. Why would anyone pay a second time to educate their children when they have already paid for the public schools? And why would anyone pay for bottled water when they can drink from a public fountain for free? The reason is that while Gresham's law holds that the bad drives out the good, it doesn't eliminate the good. It only makes the good a little more expensive and a little harder to find. In fact, a necessary requirement for Gresham's law to hold is an absence of discriminating prices, or a law requiring that two different goods have the same price, such as a $1 silver coin and a $1 paper bill. If the government decrees both of these to be of equal value, people will hoard the silver coins and circulate the worthless paper currency. Similarly, there would be no market for bottled water if there was a law requiring it to be priced, in the, sa- be priced the same as water from a public fountain. When the superior good can command a higher price, the destructive phenomena of Gresham's law is averted. Twenty years ago, Perrier was the only brand of bottled water available. Today, bottled water represents a huge segment of, soft, of the soft drink market, occupying an entire section of grocer's shelf space. Twenty years ago, homeschooling was so rare that it was even illegal in some states. Today, it is an established nationwide movement more than a million strong. This is why I'm closely following the fortunes of Dr. Todd Coulter's Doctor on Demand and Dr. Robert Berry's Patmos models, because they are the combination of the herd mentality and lone wolf tactics. Like the utilities, they get both sides to agree up front to eliminate the obvious and expensive waste in the process to everyone's benefit. And like private schools, they offer a vital product so superior to the general public standard dictated by Gresham's law that customers are willing to pay for it a second time just to make sure they get what they want. The most significant positive trend today is that employers are now moving away from the first dollar HMO benefit structure, where they tried to micromanage and pay for every health care service. They're moving to higher deductibles and personal health care spending accounts, or HSAs. Back in the bull market of the 1990s, when employees were defecting by the busload to join dot-com startups, the standard response of employers was to expand their health benefits in any way possible. In today's bear market climate, however, employers are looking to cut health care costs any way they can, and they have little fear of resistance from their employees. As patients move into higher deductible plans with more discretionary personal health care spending accounts, three things are going to happen. One is that there will be increased pressure on Congress to expand discretionary personal health care spending accounts, such as HSAs and FSAs. Second, as patients take control over the health care they purchase, 
the more cost-effective this health care will become. And third, the less health plans and employers will feel the need to micromanage it. Of course, except for homeschooling, the examples I gave of the airline, public utility, and bottled water markets are dominated by large established conglomerates with huge advertising budgets fully staffed with Washington lobbyists. You're just one physician trying to manage a solo practice. How can these scenarios apply to you? This brings me to the other half of the story I've come to tell you today, which is the saga of the three pivotal kingpins of the PC technology revolution. Bill Gates of Microsoft, Steve Jobs of Apple, and Gary Kildall of Digital Research. Everyone has heard of Gates and Jobs, but only a few select computer geeks remember Gary Kildall. But back in the early 1980s, these three were equals, and they all shared an intense fanatical hatred for their common enemy, IBM, then known as Big Blue. Gates owned the Quick Basic programming language, Jobs controlled Apple Computer, and Kildall owned the DR-DOS operating system. Today, Gates has 97% of the PC software market and is worth hundreds of billions. Jobs has 3% of the PC market and is worth hundreds of millions. While Kildall died in a bar fight in 1994, and his DR-DOS operating system is extinct. How did these three men lock neck and neck halfway into a three-way horse race for the future of the 21st century, finish with 97%, 3%, and 0% of the ultimate prize? The answer for, for Bill Gates is his good bedside manner. The answer for Steve Jobs is greed. And the answer for Gary Kildall is arrogance. Allow me to explain, starting with Steve Jobs, who could have had Bill Gates's 97% market share, or at least a 30 to 50% market share, except his greed got in the way. Steve Jobs simply couldn't contain his childish impulses and demanded that he have it all. He chose to adopt the HMO model for Apple Computer. Just as the HMO is supposed to be all healthcare to all patients at all times and all places, on the HMO's terms, of course, Jobs wanted to control the customer by owning every piece of the personal computer, the hardware, the monitor, the disk drive, the operating system, the software, and the printer. Everyone who purchased a PC from Apple would have to buy everything from Apple. They wouldn't be able to go outside the Apple network of products. They would be captive slaves to Apple Computer's 1984 vision of the PC market. Well, if greed is good and selfishness is a virtue, Apple Computer is a classic case study of too much of a good thing. Because PC consumers are no different than healthcare consumers. They bitterly resent being treated like cattle to be milk dry of their assets and ultimately led to a slaughterhouse. They may tolerate some indignities for a short period, but they will soon wise up, discover their freedom, and defect by storming the Berlin Wall that imprisons them. The story of Gary Kildall and Bill Gates can be summed up by Woody Allen's classic observation that 85% of life is just showing up. The reason Gates is the world's richest man and Kildall only lives on as an answer to a trivia question is that IBM, in 1980, in desperate need of an operating system for its PC, called on Bill Gates. Gates told IBM that Microsoft didn't have an operating system and that they should call Gary Kildall, which, and that's what IBM did. IBM wanted to use Digital Research's DR-DOS operating system. However, Kildall would not sign IBM's outrageously restrictive non-disclosure agreement and refused to even meet with them. So IBM called Bill Gates back, 
who immediately recognized the opportunity, purchased a little-known operating system called QDOS for $50,000. The Q, by the way, stands for quick and dirty, and renamed it MS-DOS. He signed IBM's non-disclosure agreement, licensed MS-DOS to IBM, and of course, everybody knows the rest of the story. There are three important lessons to take away from this tale. One, IBM failed to understand that what they thought was most valuable, the hardware, would actually become the least valuable. And what they thought was least valuable, the software, would actually become the most valuable. Two, Gary Kildall allows, allowed his emotional hatred of the enemy, the evil, em- the, uh, the evil empire of Big Blue, IBM, to overwhelm his rational business senses, which cost him the ultimate prize. And three, Bill Gates had the common sense to meet with the devil, IBM, on its terms, recognize and seize the opportunity by switching his focus from programming languages to operating system. And most important of all, Bill Gates showed up. The last great hope for the patient and the physicians who serve him is, the fate of the, is for the fate of the U.S. healthcare system to follow the fate of computing technology. Back in 1980, when the world was dominated by mainframe computers built by IBM, nearly everyone was resigned to the inevitable fact that the power of technology would be increasingly centralized in the hands of governments and a few select multinational corporations. Just as many people today have resigned themselves to the idea that the U.S. is on an irreversible path towards a single-payer healthcare system dominated by government agencies and a few conglomerate hospitals and third-party payers. However, the history of computing technology did not follow its inevitable path in 1980. A little more than a decade later, the Berlin Wall fell, the Soviet Union disintegrated, and IBM found itself in a crisis for survival, eventually firing its CEO. Not only had it given away the ultimate prize of software, it was driven out of the hardware business by a college student who started assembling PCs from off-the-shelf parts in his dorm room. While I'm not so bold to predict that healthcare will follow the same path as computing technology, reversing its course from centralization to individual patient autonomy, I can easily envision scenarios of how this can happen. One of which, consumer, or, excuse me, high-deductible consumer-driven health plans is growing and evolving at this moment. And what's exciting about this is the fact that today, many employers are actively promoting these consumer-directed health plans to their workforce when this was unthinkable a decade ago and I'm sure Craig can attest to that. So unthinkable that one well-known U.S. corporation felt compelled to fire the executive responsible for suggesting that its employees could make their own health care decisions. What's promising about the growing employer movement towards high-deductible consumer-directed health plans and HSAs is that it's reminiscence of IBM's meeting with Bill Gates a quarter of a century ago. Just as IBM asked Gates to help them out because they weren't interested in operating systems, and besides, they weren't very good at them, employers and health plans today are finally forced to admit that they aren't interested in micromanaging the health of their employees, and besides, they're not very good at it either. This is the trend to watch closely with one caveat. High-deductible health plans and HSAs are meaningless unless employers and health plans back off and let patients manage their care and take control and responsibility for their money. If they insist on micromanaging every transaction below the deductible, They don't grant the patients the autonomy to manage their health, and they don't grant patients the right to manage their money. So the moral of the story is, don't be greedy, don't be arrogant, and above all, show up. If the 800-pound gorilla is asked to meet with you, 
you may want to take time to hear their proposal. And if their proposal is something along the lines of, we aren't interested in micromanaging the health care of our employees or members, and besides, we're not very good at it either, then I suggest you take careful notes, switch your focus, and take advantage of the opportunity. But perhaps the best news I can offer is seven years old. In the 1999 book, Unleashing the Killer App, two technology consultants describe how executives at the U.S. Postal Service candidly revealed that they have developed a contingency plan that anticipates a complete shutdown of operations. Just think of that for a moment, a complete shutdown of the U.S. Postal Service. And the average person can easily understand why. Virtually everything that arrives in your mailbox is either a bill you don't want to pay or it's junk mail advertising you don't want to read. Any message, of value, any message of value arrives to you via email. And any package of value is delivered to you by FedEx or UPS. In other words, the post office can no longer rely on Gresham's Law of Media for its survival, and its fate is determined by the Nash Equilibrium. What's both truly amazing and enormously reassuring, reassuring is that the U.S. Postal Service is being driven out of business despite the fact that it has a monopoly chartered in the U.S. Constitution. Although it's politically impossible to collectively amend the Constitution to break up the postal monopoly, we are all individually helping to drive the post office out of business by using email, UPS, and FedEx. If the post office is being wiped out, despite the charter of the 219-year-old Constitution, the future of Medicare, born in 1967, and HMOs, born in 1973, neither of which, by the way, require a constitutional amendment to repeal, now look like terminally ill patients on life support waiting for someone to pull the plug. Thank you for your attention. Dr. McDowell. Yes, uh, Mac McDowell from Atlanta. I would uh, ask a question regarding your position on the fair tax, number one. Number two, uh, will it solve our problem? And three, do you think it can happen? Who are you asking? Both of them. Uh, the fair tax, I believe, does solve the problem because it completely eliminates the employer deduction for health care, and that, that's where the problem started. That would eliminate it immediately. However, I think that the chance of collectively it happening are virtually zero. I believe that the method of taxation isn't the issue. The issue is redistribution. And until you end redistribution, the method of taxation will still result in theft. Comment. Right after withholding was instituted federal income tax, A.G. Heinzone of Spindale Mills in Sevilleville, Tennessee, was uh, thoughty enough to say, well, one way we can uh, work on this is to have two pay windows. When the employee Friday afternoon comes to get paid at the first window, he gets his full check. And he steps three or four feet from there, and then he pays the withdrawal. And the federal government threatened to shut him down. If we could have people just please uh, introduce yourself when you come to the microphone. Sherwood Cape, El Paso, Texas. Uh, uh, let's see. This is Mr. Smittingoff. Uh, you mentioned two very critical things. 
Uh, one is the, the HSA, or in other words, the small stuff that people pay for individually, and the second is high deductible insurance. I'd like to add, ask you about adding one more thing to that, and that is that the high deductible insurance be for more than one year. For example, if you had auto insurance, um, it's $500 deductible. That comes out to a dollar and something a day. If they wrote the insurance company wrote the deductible for a dollar thirty-seven or whatever it is, um, you know they go bankrupt in no time because of the small deductible. But, but that's daily. With uh, if you make the deductible over several years and write the policy over several years, then you can push it so that most uh, hospitalizations are paid out of pocket or from the HSA, and therefore 85, you might get it to 85% of the people are watching the store, whereas only 15 are going to get this uh, free insurance. Uh, do you have any um, suggestion about that, increasing the length of time that the... Uh, the, the health insur- the high deductible and health insurance policy is. I, I would say that's that's very creative thinking. Uh, several years ago, I once made a similar proposal suggesting that, and uh, one actuary responded that that was immoral. But I, I, there's no reason insurance companies can't create contracts longer than a year. The uh, typical auto or I think the typical auto policy is six months. The typical homeowner's policy is a year. And what you suggest with the high deductible with the HSA makes a lot of sense. And I would think if, uh, unless there were a law restricting it, I would think especially for small business owners that there would be a demand for that. And I would think and hope that that would evolve. Jane Orient, Tucson. Uh, Jerry, could you give a brief uh, explanation of the Nash Equilibrium for us dumb doctors in the audience? Uh, The Nash Equilibrium says (laughs) that you will do more or less what everybody else does. And a classic example is, if if there were no traffic laws and you went to a new country, which side of the road would you drive on? Well, you might want to drive on the side of the road with the best pavement. You might want to drive on the side of the road with the best view. But in reality, if everybody else is driving on the left, you're going to drive on the left. And if anybody else is driving on the right, you're going to drive on the right. I'm next. I'm uh, Robert Bullington. I'm a retired cardiologist from Phoenix and uh, proud to say I'm a member of this organization for over 50 years. I've always been proud to be a member of this organization. I think it's the uh, the only really true uh, honorable organization representing medicine in this country today. And I have I've been a member of the AMA too. But I'm saying this mostly for new members. Uh, I feel like that uh, AAPS really represents American medicine and eventually will win. But uh, what I wanted to ask uh, the panel, uh, I'm very enthusiastic about medical savings accounts. I I have a son who has uh, a company in Dallas, and he's put medical savings accounts in his company, and it's, it's worked very well for the executives as well as the employees. 
and uh, I have a son and a daughter who are ophthalmologists here who've put medical savings accounts in their office, and they're enthusiastic. I'm wondering what the panel thinks about the future of, of uh, health savings accounts, they now call them. Uh, what, uh, what's holding them back, and uh, whether or not they will really take over and be the dominant influence in American <coughs> medicine? Well... Who knows? I, you know, we're probably going to have a, a change in control in Congress. No telling what that's going to bring. I think, I think HSAs right now are the only hope that I see in the foreseeable future. But they are a slim hope. Um, big companies aren't really. Um, there's so many. There's so many rules with HSAs. I don't know all the rules. I don't. I gave up studying them. And uh, I would prefer not to manipulate the tax code, which is what that does. I'm also opposed to 401k plans, which is something similar, because it gets, the, it gets companies into the administration of the tax code. And I don't, I, don't believe, uh, I don't believe that people should be taxed twice on their income. To me, that's the real issue. And if you don't do that, everything else goes away. Okay. Any, anybody else have a comment on HSAs? Well... I I, I, I I agree with Greg's points, but I, I think in the, in the short term, the hope for HSAs is the idea that patients will start to take control of their health and that the health, ma- health plans and employers just might start to back off. Because I, I think there are the, the bulk of the U.S. health care system is driven by large employers and whatever li- large empl- employers want. And I, my impression is what, what killed the Clinton health care plan was a coalition of large employers essentially ganged up and finally realized what was going to happen. And if, 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 if you can get those people on board with HSAs, that is what will, will drive the market. The typical doctor will find more and more people coming into his office with HSA coverage. And I think that would start to change the market, in the, which would be in the direction that you would want it to go. Thank you. Um, Lee Heeb from Yuma. I'm an orthopedic surgeon, and 10 years ago, we board-certified 640 orthopedic surgeons. Last year, we board-certified 570, and this has had a real impact in coverage in the emergency room. And you guys didn't talk about it, and I'm just I'm trying to figure out in all this economic issue how this fits in, but basically, I see a more and more coercive environment, and I'm what my big concern is that the next step is going to be to get a medical license in the state of, in my case, Arizona, you will need to cover an emergency room. And, and that kind of trumps a lot of economic arguments. I just wonder where you see this going and what, what's going to happen. You, I, I would say you've, you, you've hit on one of the key weaknesses. What I try to describe was how the basic uh, fundamental economic forces will work. If the government wants to step in and force two things to be priced the same, or in your case, force people to cover emergency rooms, then that stops the natural uh, positive effects of economic forces. So, yes, a- any positive trend that I talk about, uh, the government can always step in and kill it at any moment. Well, I, I co-authored a, a study for the Goldwater Institute with Dr. Jeffrey Singer. Many of you know Dr. Singer. And uh, one of our conclusions was, and it was a study about the shortage of doctors in Arizona. One of our conclusions was that Mtala was was one of the primary causes of that shortage, um, and um, of course there are other causes with that also. You know, um, forcing doctors to 
to work for nothing in emergency rooms, which, of course, encourages them to drop their association with many hospitals. 